We have 10 children and we have five grandbabies. Yeah. So. so we can honestly say if not for the family series, we wouldn't be the family that we are today. No, good or bad, right? So um, we thought that it was important to ask all of our children to be here tonight and to come and introduce themselves quickly. Um, because, and the reason why is because part of what we're gonna share tonight is our story. And we wanted to make sure that as we told our story, it's their story too. And we wanted to make sure that they were here and they heard exactly what we were saying so then they didn't, there was no um, misinterpretations later. So um, not all of our children made it here tonight, but, um, <laughs> and uh, they were giving pretty uh, instructions to stand in age order, but then we got this weird height order thing going on. So I, I'm not sure why we can't quite follow instructions, but that's okay. So Mike, oh, we're, we decided we're gonna start oldest okay. to youngest. So, we'll start here. I'm Maya, I'm 25, and I'm the mom of the group. So they're supposed to be telling you their name, their age, and then how they fit into our family. I'm Ariana, I am 23, and I am the antagonist. <laughs> I'm Sydney, I'm 18, and I'm the most dramatic. <laughs> I'm Deja, I'm 13, and I'm the most extra. <laughs> I'm Kyla, I'm 12, and I'm most competitive when it comes to sports. I'm Dominic, I'm 11, and I play the most sports in the family. I'm Kaden, and I'm 10 years old, and I am the youngest. I'm Nate, I'm 27, and I'm the son-in-law. Right. Thank you. So, m missing out of our bunch here. Um, you guys are. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So missing out of our bunch here is our oldest, who is 28 and lives in Florida with his family. Um, and then we're also missing our second oldest boy, who is 23, 4, 24. Um, and um, who he is is late, because he was supposed to be here. So anyway. <laughs> so now so, that you have met our family. So just I'll, a moment. I'm oh. sorry. Can you guys put the presentation up? Thank you. So now that you've met our family, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain how our family was built. So in the beginning was Karen Mitchell. <laughs> I could not get him not to say that. So I would just <laughs> Well, so at 16, she had a, a baby boy. His name was Deshaun. Um, a couple years later, she got married, had three more kids, Jalen, Ariana, and Elijah. Um, then she was divorced, and then she met me, yours truly, standing before you. <laughs> Um, and then after I came into the picture, we got married. Uh, Maya became uh, our goddaughter. Maya stayed with us more consistently in our household. Then several years later, we had three more kids. It'd be Deja, Kyla, and Kaden. And I'm going to interject. We had three babies in three years. So it was like we were in some weird baby marathon or something. But, you know, anyway. <laughs> it's all good. Um, <laughs> About uh, two and a half years later, Carmen, which is Karen's sister, had passed away, and then Sydney and Dominic stayed with us. Okay. So that's how we became a parent of 10 children. So because we have so many different dynamics in our house, it was really important to Dan and I to really establish what kind of family that we wanted to be. And it was a lot of hard work and it took a lot of dedication because really there were a lot of things that were working against us, right? So right off the bat, you know, when we looked at it from st 
statistically speaking, um, what the problems were, the first thing that was working against us were a bunch of numbers, right? So the first thing is that as a teenage parent, so the fact that I actually, I had um, Deshaun when I was 16, I had Jalen when I was 19. So as a, as a teenage parent, there's some statistics that go beyond that. So 40% of teenage mothers, only 40% finish high school. And less than 2% of them finish college before the age of 30. And because they have such a lower education bar, they are more likely to live, um, to have overall lifetime earnings be lower, right? So as a single parent, or as a teenage parent, you're more likely to live in a household that has income below the poverty level. So the other thing is that teenage parents have more instances of mental health concerns. So because of the stress that become, comes with being a parent, when you're still kind of a child yourself, um, they are more apt to have depression and suicidal ideation. And lastly, when you're a teenage parent, you are more likely to have children that are teenage parents also. So those were some of the statistics that, just from the fact that I started Parenthood early, that we were working against in our family. Another thing that our family was working against was divorce. Um, some of those divorce statistics, 50% of our first marriages, 67% of second marriages, and about 74% of third marriages. <coughs> and the reason why divorce is, is key is after the first divorce, it, um, after they, you know, the, the couple get through it, they're like, you know what, I can do this, I can make it. So that's why the third, second and third divorces are more pronounced. So it's easier to get divorced once you've done it one time. So the other reason why the divorce statistics or something else that we are fighting up against are external influences. Maybe you can click that link for me. So just in our household alone, it's me and Dan, it's 10 children, and between all the children in the house, there are five mothers and seven fathers, right? So there's all this external influence that tries to impact what goes on in our house. So when you talk why the divorce statistics are so high for secondary marriages is when you have children, you have all these other people outside trying to influence what's going on in the house. And so Dan and I, we worked really hard. That was one of the things that we really fought hard against is making sure that what happened in our house, we decided and nobody else decided for us. The next thing that um, we were fighting against were the reasons that most people get divorced. So some of the reasons why um, divorce happened is why couples divorce, the, the leading thing is 74% is, uh, is lack of commitment. Uh, a couple others would be they argue too much, uh, infidelity, uh, marry too young, unrealistic expectations, uh, lack of equality in relationship, lack of preparation for marriage, and domestic <laughs> violence or abuse. Right, so because those, that's a reason why couples divorce, we were um, emphatic about not making sure none of those things were part of our relationship. So lastly, um, nearly 30% of children whose parents have divorced live in households um, that are below the poverty level. So again, for, for our family, that's a second strike against us in the income category, right? So one strike because I was a teenage parent, the second strike is because um, I had been previously divorced. So the next set of statistics that we were working against, 
So can you click the arrow in the corner? And then forward one slide. <coughs> is blended family statistics. So another thing that, you know, as far as families go, blended families, that could be an issue as well, if you allow it. But some of the statistics are 16% of the children live in blended families. Uh, less than half, which is 45% of those children, uh, do well after divorce. So by do well, that means that um, children that are part of a blended family are, have higher instances of low self-esteem. Um, they have to deal with abandonment issues, rejection, which leads to substance abuse. So all of these things occur because they're in a household where they're not with their natural parents. Um, also, 50% of these children, so children that have gone through a divorce one time, will witness their parents go through a second divorce. And so after that second divorce, they do even less well than they do after the first divorce. So we were determined that we would not let these statistics be, we, us become part of that statistic, right? So we were determined to make sure that we, we proved to our children that just because we were a blended family, that, means, that didn't mean we were broken, right? That didn't mean we were dysfunctional. That just means that we came together differently than some of the uh, natural, some of the natural um, uh, families that we know. So I want you to take a minute, 10 seconds, turn to your neighbor and tell them two things that you are fighting against in your family. Because in reality, if you don't know what you're fighting against, you really don't know how to have a plan of attack for that. So it's really important that you can articulate, you know, these are things that we are fighting against in our family. So then that'll allow you to determine what you're fighting for. So what are we fighting for as a family? Well, we're fighting for, in our household, well-adjusted children that become well-adjusted adults. Yep. That was super important to us, right? We wanted to make sure that our children, as they grew up, that they didn't grow up with, there was no, no lack. They didn't understand lack. They wouldn't understand lack of love, none of that. That was super important to us. Another was um, adequately educated. Right? <laughs> When you talk about education, we know there's a direct correlation between education and income potential. So we wanted to make sure that they knew that there's the link between the two and they had every opportunity to become as educated as possible to make sure that they would have enough income to do whatever they needed. Mentally stable, healthy relationships, permanent marriages, and stable households. So we wanted to make sure that they were mentally stable, right? So that they didn't have to deal with, um, because there, naturally it comes when, when you live in a home where your parent is not, abandonment is always part of what you kind of feel, right? And we wanted to make sure that, that even if they had those feelings, that they, it didn't stifle them from a mental capacity. And that because when you have um, mental instability, that's where unhealthy relationships come in, right? So we wanted to make sure they had healthy relationships, not only with us, but with their natural parents, right? Because they, that is necessary for them to grow and for them to develop. And as far as um, permanent marriages, we, what we were fighting for is permanent, our marriage to be permanent, right? right? Because what we understood is that if there is instability here, then our whole household becomes unstable. Right. And it, it's so funny how quickly it can happen. So anytime that we're not together, it trickles down to the kids no matter how, how much we try to hide it 
right, or how much we pretend like it's not happening, if there's anything here that is not connected, then everything starts to fall apart. So we wanted to make sure that we had a permanent marriage so that as they moved into adulthood, they would have an example and they would enter into a permanent marriages also. So with that being said, can you turn to your neighbors and, turn and tell them two things that you guys are fighting for in your families? So now that we have determined that, we want to determine a win for the fight of, for our family, and we use core values as a way to do it. Your family core values are created or create the backbone, uh, consistency, and culture for every family member to thrive in every aspect of life. So why do you have core values? So core values are traits or qualities that represent your highest priorities, deeply held beliefs, and core fundamental driving focus. So really your core values are the heart of your family. So what are these core values? Well, it makes decision making easier. <laughs> You'll know where to go. Um, you know where to invest your time and energy. You'll discover your blocks. So Blocks are places in your life where you, where what you're doing doesn't align with your core values, right? And it happens to the best of us. And if you understand what your core values are, then you'll easily be able to easily recognize your blocks, right? So it's really easy for people to want to beat each other up when they find things in someone else's life where it doesn't align with your values, right? So identifying these blocks is not, the intent is not for you to beat yourself up or beat your family members up. It's, a, it's an opportunity for you to figure out where you are, figure out how you need to course correct, make those changes, and then make sure the rest of your life aligns with the values that you have established. So, and so other reasons why you need core values is that you will feel more unified. So as a family, if you have a set of core values, then that's something that you can rally around. Right? You can say, my family believes in this. And you know that you're not alone in those beliefs and in those values. Um, you'll be able to better define your goals because all of your goals should be aligned with your core values. And once you have your goals, then you'll be empowered to, you'll feel empowered to reach those goals as a family. So defining your core values um, you can deconstruct your family and your personal values. So deconstructing your values is really about um, understanding why you have the values that you do. So as an adult, you get your values from your family. And then oftentimes in adulthood, you really don't spend any time trying to figure out where you got those values, where they came from, and if you need to establish new values as an adult. And I will tell any young person here or any person that's not married, you really need to spend some time defining your personal values. And before you connect your life with anybody else, you need to understand their values. Because if you connect your life with someone who has values that don't align with yours, you're going to have a hard time being married. Right. You're going to have a really hard time being married, right? If foundationally your values are not the same, you're going to struggle because you're going to be in a constant clash. And, you know, so for me and Dan, we're both fortunate. We, we grew up in stable households. Both of our parents are military, so we had stable homes. There were stable incomes. Our parents have been married for decades. My parents have been married for over 50 years, and his parents have been married for over 40 years. So from that perspective, we are, we're very fortunate. 
But there are some things like in that he grew up, that his household ran very different than the household that I grew up in. So when we got married and we were trying to figure out what kind of household we were going to be, there were a few conflicts, right? Because there were certain things that um, I was just like, I'm just used to doing it this way, and I don't know why this is a problem for you. And can you? <laughs> Let me elaborate on that. So, no, here you go. <laughs> so when we first got married, I'm very affectionate because that's what I grew up in my house. So let me explain. His family is uber affectionate. It's the, I mean, I've never seen any such in my whole entire life. Like, I heard a story. They had to hug in between Christmas presents. So you open a present, you have to hug in between. So anyway. So you can see where I'm coming from. So I, I like to hold hands. I like to hug my wife. I like to kiss my wife. But she didn't grow up with that. So in the beginning, we were just kind of going back and forth. I'm like, well, look, I'm persistent. So <laughs> here we are, 10 kids later. And <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, it, it came down to what, did, what kind of household, what do we want to show our children mm -hmm. from an affectionate perspective? And believe me, I'm sure they would wish we would show a little less affection. Um, nothing weird. But anyway, but we wanted to show them that their parents loved each other and were affectionate towards each other. And we were equally affectionate towards them, right? And that it wasn't weird. And it's super weird because we have like five extra affectionate people and then five non-affectionate people. So it gets a little weird sometimes at our house when we're trying to show affection. But it really was something that we value in our house. And we wanted to make sure it was part of who we were. All right. So um, the next one when you're defining your core values is to reflect on your major life decisions. So when you look back on what your major life decisions and how you decided them, that's a good place to figure out where, you're at, where your core values are. Because anytime you make a major decision, your core values come into play. So now, because of that, you want to also consider some common values. A couple of them, for example, would be honesty. Um, uh, balance, uh, humor. Can you get your uh, glasses, sir? <laughs> I left them in my coat. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just, just you know, uh, learning, wisdom, leadership, compassion, just to name a few. you got to really consider the common values. Also, you want to communicate them with your family. So this is where you can approach this differently. So a lot of when we did our, our background and our research, it says that you should involve your children in defining your values and, and that. And I'm going to be honest, we didn't do that. We didn't. Um, we had a hard enough time aligning on what our core values were going to be. As, and, and we just figured, once we had defined, these are the core values for our house. We shared those values with our children, and we explained why they were values. And um, I don't remember anyone trying to interject any values, but we just felt like it was our responsibility as the heads of this household to define what our values were going to be. Um, you can do things differently. Maybe you have kids that are a different maturity level than ours, and they can really come up with some good core values. But for as far as we were concerned, um, we were going to define how this house was going to run and not right. the children. So the other part of it is once you've identified your core values, you need to integrate them into every facet of your life, right? Your core values need to become a part of 
everything that you do, a reminder of this is what we do, this is how we do it, and then my favorite is it, it's an indication of this is how we act, right? And I tell my children all the time, we don't act this way, this is how we act. Or you may say this is how we behave, it just depends on you know, your choice of words. But it's really, when you talk about your core values, it's how you act or how you interact with other people. We wanted to make sure they understood this is how we expect for you to interact with other people in the family as well as interact with people outside of the family. So once you have determined um, how you will act as a family by establishing your core values, you are now ready to move to setting goals as a family. And family goals are the way in which families live and carry out their family vision and family mission statements. So why do you set goals as a family? So if you don't look ahead as a family, you won't move forward as a family, right? And there is nothing worse than being tightly knit with a group of people that aren't going in the same direction and aren't going at the same speed and aren't, and, or just aren't going, right? <laughs> and if you don't have goals, then you won't go. You will just exist. So let's, uh, when we develop our goals, our children learn important life skills. For one, communication, uh, self-discipline, uh, commitment, and also persuasiveness. Or perseverance, I'm sorry. Well, that too. I mean. We really did write this together. I'm not sure what's going on over here. I'm standing next to you, I mean. Stop it. I knew this was gonna be a hot mess, let me just tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, so how, to set, how do you set goals as a family? Well, everyone helps. Uh, visibility is key because you have to have your goals set in front of you so you don't lose sight of where you're going. So by everyone helps, we usually set our goals at our family meeting, right? So at our family meeting, we set goals and then we review your previous goals to see how you came through on your goals. And our, we let our children set their own goals, right? And letting people set their own goals was very, very important. Because when you set goals for other people, you can accidentally slide into manipulation, right? Because all, you can set a goal for somebody based on what you want them to do and what you want them to be and not, not really what they want to do or what they want to be. So you should give them the opportunity to set their own goals. And by letting them set their own goals, then they really can, you can convince, you can try to encourage them to stretch their goals, right? But really they have ownership of them when you, when they set them themselves. So we also, we would set one goal for each one of the kids. And just to be honest, most of the time it had to do with, I called it emotional control, because our whole family is extra emotional. So I, everybody got an emotional control goal. And then, um, and then we, at the end of setting, talking about their goals, we asked them, do you need anything from anybody in, our, in the family, right? And that's important for them to know that they set this goal, but they weren't in it alone, right? We set it as a family, and we're gonna help, uh, help you achieve it as a family. Um, the, another point is that you shouldn't set too many goals at one time, right? Because if you set a lot of goals, then that's a lot of things that you have to focus on, and you're more likely to not achieve any of them. 
the next is when you set your goals, you focus on the process as well as the outcome, right? Because it's really easy in goal setting just to focus on whether I achieve the goal or not. And a lot of times if you didn't achieve the goal, then that disappointment will make you throw the whole goal away, right? You learn more from the process by which you try to achieve something than, what you, than actually achieving it or not. And so it's better if, you, if there's opportunity and you didn't achieve the goal, going back and look at the steps and seeing what you did or what you didn't do, resetting the timeline on that goal, and then moving forward. So you also want to follow up. You want to follow up after your goal. So after you make your goal, you go through the process, if you're falling astray, have someone in your family come and follow up with you. It's like, hey, how's everything going? How are you doing? Or you can go up to the kids, say, hey, you said you were going to do this. How's that working out for you? Follow up. That way it can be constantly in your mind and you can constantly keep going forward instead of being stale or taking steps back. So we all know, when, what's, the, what's one thing they tell you about setting a goal? You need to set a SMART goal, right? So you hear it over and over. You need to set a goal that's specific, measurable, achievable, results-focused, and time-based. And if your goal does not have these components, again, you're much less likely to achieve these goals. So we're going to have an example of what may or may not be a real-life goal um, that maybe was not necessarily a SMART goal. I want to be more like Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, what do we say about this goal? We say bad. Bad goal. Why? <laughs> Why? Because what was Jesus like? Right? <laughs> um, how long is it going to take you to be like Jesus? Dan, how long is it going to take you to be like Jesus? Well, I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> you don't know, right? What are you going to have to do to be like Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. All right. So, <laughs> so instead of that, um, you could revise your goal, and this is more of a smart goal. So I will spend at least an hour a day praying to Jesus or studying my Bible so that I can teach what I've learned to the world. Yes. Yes. But Jesus didn't study the Bible, I'm sure. Well, but no, he didn't have to, but I'm human, so. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Goal star. Good goal. <laughs> All right. So, so once we've defined who we are as a family and how we get things done, it's time to create vision for our family. A vision state. Oh, it's obvious. Sorry. A vision statement is something that will um, inspire you. It is what you want to happen. It is also a plan of how you will live your um, your values. So, why create a vision statement for the family? Nothing creates more happiness and hope in a young heart than knowing that mom and dad believe that you are capable of greatness. So this is a big one, right? When you set your vision statement, and it should be something that is amazing. And it helps your kids to understand that you believe in them and you trust that they can do whatever they set their mind to and that you are willing to stand behind them until, it, until the end of time in order to make sure that it gets done. It also holds the family accountable for themselves and one another. Um, if we don't take too, uh, let's see, if we don't take too time uh, to stock, plan, and develop a vision for our family, it's very unlikely that we will actually live out our values. 
other things will creep in and steal our time. Yeah. So if we have no clear idea where we are going, then we will never, ever get there. You're never going to get there. Like if you, even if you have a vision in your mind's eye for your family, but you don't have a, 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 a plan on how to get there, it is not going to happen. So in Proverbs 29 and 18, it says, without a vision, the people perish, right? So with your family, without a vision, your family will perish. And maybe not in a way, not a, not a physical death, but every thought, every vision, every hope, every dream for your family will die if you do not have a vision and a plan for your family to achieve that vision. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, how do you create a family vision statement. So a vision statement is something that you will, or that will inspire, inspire you. It is what you want to happen. Um, it's also a plan of how you live your life. So you got to align it with your uh, values and goals. Write down the difference you want your family to make. Keep it simple. Use clear, concise, jargon-free language. <laughs> I was struggling with that. But so <laughs> so you should also use the present tense, right? So say, even if your family's not that today, Say what they are. Say it as if they are that right now. Speak into the present as if it is the future. Um, I'm sorry, can you guys put that back up? Okay, thank you. So um, think about we, not me. So we're in this weird time where everyone wants to make a vision statement, and they want to make personal vision statements. And, when and personal vision statements are great when you are a person. Right? But once you become part of a family or the head of a family, your vision needs to change to be family focused. You need to think about what you need to do as a family. Um, you really can't have a family with everybody having their own individual vision statements, right? Because the likelihood that you're going the same direction is very unlikely. So you need to make sure as you're creating your vision statement, you're thinking about the we, which is your family, and not the me. Um, you should be forward thinking. Don't get stuck and worrying about where you are today when you are trying to create a vision statement for your family. Look at what you want your family to be, who you want your family to be, what you want your family to accomplish, and how you, what you need to do in order to get there. And then you need to infuse your vision statement with passion, right? It's got to have some passion behind it. It's got to have some emotion behind it. It has to have some feeling behind it. It has to be something that when you read it, you know, you feel it all in your heart, and your children get the feeling that you put into your vision statement, right? Because if it does not have any passion, they're going to have a hard time rallying behind it. So your vision statement basically says, this is who we are. So... Once you go through all of this work, I'm sure you're going to think that at the end, you're going to have a perfect family, right? You have this perfect family that you can post all over Facebook, and you can say, you know, me living my best life pictures and all that, and everything's going to be wonderful, right? But just to be true, to tell you the truth, that's absolutely not what's going to happen. And the reason why is because a perfect family does not exist, right? A perfect family is not a real thing. Because families are made of imperfect people. So what that means is that no matter what your values are, no matter how much, you, how much your goals are, no matter how much you, you know, chant your vision statement, you're going to run into opportunities where you make a decision that doesn't align with any of those things. 
right? And what those, so even though your family is not perfect, if you have those things in your arsenal, you have something to go back to in order to get your family back on track, right? So instead, um, your family might look like that second slide where, you know, somebody's showing up, you have religious battles, you know, you try to kiss somebody and their face look like that, or, you know, we have people trying to hit each other with bats, you know, somebody's going to show up angry, somebody's going to show up without the right clothes, somebody's not going to show up at all, Jalen and somebody's going to show up and they're going to pee all over themselves. Now, that is probably going to be the reality of your family, and that's just real life. So if after all this work and that's what you end up with, your question might, might even be, why would I even bother? <laughs> you want to bother because building, being a head of a household is probably one of the most important jobs you'll ever have. Not probably. It will be. Absolutely. And it is. Um, because you're establishing a legacy. Now, a legacy is not leaving something for someone. It's leaving something in someone or leaving something in people, basically. Right. So when we looked at it, today we are Dan and Karen Mitchell, and we have 10 amazing children. So our expectation is that each one of our children will marry one time, and we will end up with five son-in-laws and five daughter-in-laws, right? So from there, that's the next generation that we know that we're impacting. So if we, ex we expect that each one of our children will have an average of three kids, right? So an even though Maya says she's not having three kids, but they're going to average out. So we're going to have a, an average of three kids. So that means that we should have at least 30 grandchildren. If each of our 30 grandchildren get married and have at least three children each, that means that we end up with 90 great-grandchildren. When each of our great-grandchildren get married, if they have an average of three children apiece, we will have 270 great-grandchildren. So that is a total of 400 people in four generations from these two people, right? So when we look at it and we answer the question, why bother? It's because what we do today for these 10 people is going to touch the world. Those 400 people can make a difference for the world, and Dan and I are committed that it's going to be a difference for the good and not That's for right. the bad. Right. Right? 